I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to the latest of our We the People Constitutional Podcasts. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And this week, we confront two hotly contested questions. Who should control American foreign policy, the president or Congress? And what does the Constitution say about that balance? The United States, in cooperation with five other major world powers, is scrambling to meet a deadline in its ongoing negotiations with Iran. Uh, all parties, parties insist that a preliminary framework for a nuclear deal has to be in place by the beginning of April. But there's intense opposition to a potential deal in Congress, with most Republicans and some Democrats arguing that Iran will use any agreement as a pretext to keep efforts going to build nuclear weapons. House Speaker John Boehner made his reservations known publicly when he invited Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to speak to Congress last week without consulting the Obama administration. And this week, 47 Republican senators sent a letter to Iran's leaders in which they explained the role of the Senate in approving treaties. The letter argued that any agreement short of a treaty could be revoked by a future Republican president. Both acts started a wide-ranging public debate about the proper constitutional roles of the president and Congress in directing foreign policy, and joining me to examine those crucial constitutional issues are two of the world's leading experts on the questions and also good friends of our We the People podcasts. Bruce Ackerman is Sterling Professor of Law and Political Science at Yale University. His latest book is We the People, The Civil Rights Revolution. Lewis Fisher is scholar-in-residence at the Constitution Project. He previously worked for four decades at the Library of Congress as senior specialist in the separation of powers and as a specialist in constitutional law. Uh, uh, Lou, let's jump right into it. Um, Prime Minister Netanyahu's address to Congress was questioned on constitutional grounds by some scholars. Article 2, Section 8 of the Constitution says that the president, quote, shall receive ambassadors and other public ministers. Was there a constitutional conflict with Congress uh, taking a diplomatic initiative outside of its Article I powers, as some scholars have claimed, or as other scholars argue, is this uh, perfectly consistent uh, on the grounds that uh, Congress has uh, another constitutional power at stake in the debate, the power to inform itself and maintain exclusive control over access to its physical facilities? Um, what, what's your what's your view on those constitutional questions? I, I don't think I don't think there's a constitutional issue. I think there's a legitimate policy issue. There's no constitutional issue because, as you as you know, that uh, uh, the president doesn't have any monopoly over meeting with foreign people, and often foreign ministers coming into D.C. will go to Congress because they know how important Congress is. So uh, there's, there's no constitutional issue. I do think it was bad judgment to invite anybody from any country uh, to give an address. Uh, to Congress two weeks before uh, the election at home. Um, so uh, constitutional problems, I don't see any, but uh, political judgment, uh, I don't think it should be done. Uh, Bruce, any constitutional issues that the Constitution does have this uh, power to receive? You, you have to remember that Congress has the power to declare war. The uh, speech had to do with that, the exercise of that power. Um, I think it was vastly imprudent, foolish almost, but uh, constitutionally I see no serious problem with this. All right, let's hone in on the second uh, topic of the week, the letter from 47 Republican senators to Iran government lecturing that nation about our constitution. 
Did sending the letter itself raise constitutional issues or statutory issues uh, for the senators who sent it? And how accurate were the constitutional arguments made by the senators? Iran's foreign minister, who has a doctorate in international law, has offered to teach the senators about, quote, nuances of their own constitution when it comes to presidential powers in the conduct of foreign policy. Lou, tell us about the constitutional issues raised by this letter sent by the 47 senators. Well, I, first of all, I, I, don't, I, I think members of Congress can uh, express their views on public policy and, and treaties and anything they want. Uh, uh, that's, that's part of self-government. I, I thought it was strange that a new senator, uh, 37 years old, would be the lead name and apparently uh, uh, initiated this. Uh, I think if the Senate wanted to express itself, I would have preferred that it be done a little more organized and a little more senior people and uh, perhaps a, a chairman of foreign, foreign relations. So uh, I think that would be right. I think it was a clumsy way to do it. It looked, looked uh, uh, not very thoughtful and, and, and well-planned. Uh, Bruce, uh, tell us about the letter. The Logan Act, passed in 1799, prohibits private U.S. citizens from corresponding with foreign governments with proper authorization. Some have uh, invoked the Logan Act and even gone so far as to call the letter a form of treason. What, what are your views on those strong charges? Well, the Logan Act is a fascinating story, actually. Uh, uh, the... Uh, uh, um, the uh, Americans who were uh, uh, blazing uh, trails in what was soon to be the Louisiana Purchase um, were uh, uh, very seriously engaging uh, with France uh, to establish a new republic. Um, Aaron Burr probably was involved in this conspiracy. Um, uh, and that's what is the source of the Logan Act is. <laughs> Um, the um, uh, it does represent a uh, of course this is not uh, to be taken seriously that 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 senators are guilty of crimes and things of this kind uh, uh, there have been uh, uh, but nonetheless uh, the notion uh, that uh, the Senate should be engaged in a cooperative enterprise with. Uh, uh, the president did not go out on uh, frolics and detours of its own. Uh, if uh, this letter had been addressed to the president, uh, that would have been quite a different matter. Um, uh, uh, but this uh, is uh, really does offend uh, fundamental uh, uh, constitutional principles of coordination and uh, and common sense and. Uh, it will be vastly counterproductive um, in the follow what what's what what really and you see because we should move beyond uh, these uh, momentary uh, um, uh, you know and and quite striking uh, acts of uh, politicization uh, uh, to uh, the paradoxical consequences of these little events because that's what they really are uh, on the large uh, drama, uh, which is uh, a tragedy in my view, uh, that is uh, President Obama comes into office to, um, uh, uh, with a commitment to rein in the uh, abuses of executive power by President Bush. 
and is going to go out of office confirming and expanding these uh, same executive abuses. So what's what the real consequences of these two dramatic acts of the last week uh, are is the following. Uh, uh, Senator Corker, who is a fine uh, 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 senator who didn't sign this letter, uh, he's a Republican, of course, since this, uh, the Republicans control the Senate, was well on his way to uh, gaining uh, a bipartisan consensus for a bill that would have required um, uh, President Obama to gain the approval of the Senate, I mean, of, of both houses of, the, of Congress, uh, in a uh, uh, to um, any agreement uh, that he was going to negotiate. And this makes sense. A president of the United States should gain the consent of Congress for making a commitment for 10 or 15 years. Moreover, uh, we, uh, that was the practice uh, uh, that we engaged in uh, with the Soviet Union and the Russians. This, we ratified all of these agreements by treaties um, uh, 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 to the present day. Uh, uh, in commercial transactions of co commercial transfers of technology, there is a requirement for congressional executive agreement where both houses of Congress by majorities approve uh, the transfer and so-called one-two-three agreements. Um, this is uh, what uh, Senator Corker was planning was uh, to insist on a uh, advise and consent role either by the Senate or more probably by both houses of Congress uh, to the uh, president's initiative on this fundamental matter. And I think putting the merits of everything to one side, he was very much on the way to success and it was a good thing. Now, what the results of these imprudent and unwise acts are uh, by uh, inviting President uh, Netanyahu and, uh, and this letter, uh, this managed to uh, 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 politicize the entire matter. So what's going to happen is this, um, and you know, you've heard it here first. <laughs> um, there is going to be an agreement. Uh, Senator Corker is going to try to enact a bill insisting on uh, a congressional agreement to the president's agreement. Uh, it will pass the Congress and it will be vetoed by the president. And then um, uh, 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 the veto will not be overridden because of this hyper-politicization that has alienated the Democrats. They will back their president. And that means that there's going to be a great precedent to be exploited by the next president and the next president that he can make international commitments on fundamental matters of war and peace for long periods of time without the advice and consent of Congress, um, which is precisely the kind of thing that um, uh, uh, Senator Obama was protesting about when George W. Uh, w. Bush uh, uh, did similar things. I can go into details, but I've already talked enough. Thank you for that uh, provocative uh, series of uh, predictions. And Lou, I want to ask you to react to Bruce's notion that it would be a good thing if the Senate uh, were required to give uh, its consent to the president's international commitments. I want you to tell us a little more about the 
interaction between the Congress and the president in ratifying treaties. Uh, some commentators argue that the uh, Republican senators erred when they claimed that the uh, Senate uh, must ratify a treaty by a two-thirds vote because, as Jack Goldsmith argues, the Senate doesn't ratify treaties. It gives its advice about empowering the president to proceed with ratification. How significant is that technical error? And more broadly, is Bruce correct that throughout history, uh, the president and Congress have best acted according to the constitutional system when they've uh, cooperated uh, in making international agreements rather than the president's acting unilaterally? I certainly agree with Bruce that anything like a 10-, 15-year commitment on such a vital area uh, uh, is so much stronger when it has the backing of both branches, and it doesn't appear to be uh, President Obama acting unilaterally, as he has done too many times in too many areas. Uh, you know, there's, there's nothing in the Constitution to guide us on how treaty negotiation or international agreements negotiation should be done, and there's been a misconception, of course, by Justice Sutherland in the Curtis Wright case that uh, treaty negotiation is a presidential monopoly and Congress cannot interfere, and that's foolishness because presidents over the years have understood that it's smart to, uh, in order to get Senate uh, support for treaties, to get senators involved in treaty negotiation. And, and Sutherland in his book in 1919 said, of course, he had been a senator. He said, of course, senators do that. So that's that's, that's, that's just a total misconception. It's not just the Senate. Uh, we all know the famous story about George Washington, the Jay Treaty, uh, the House of Representatives wanted some documents, and uh, uh, Washington, I think, very uh, misleadingly said uh, the House is not part of the treaty-making process. But the House is part of the treaty implementation process. And if the House had enough votes, they said, if you want this implemented, uh, we need those documents. And, and, and the reason I think it's unfortunate that Washington ever suggested that is that about three years before on a treaty, uh, the Algerine Treaty, uh, uh, he, he, went, he treated the House and the Senate as equals, and the House got all the treaty documents that the Senate did because you needed money. And uh, so I think it's a very dangerous idea that presidents can unilaterally commit the nation to various uh, uh, agreements and uh, and even maybe financial commitments, and uh, that puts Congress in the back seat. So I think it's very very unwise for presidents to have this arrogance that they can do things alone and uh, keep Congress out. Bruce uh, Lou has filed a brief in the Zivotofsky case where the Supreme Court is deciding whether Congress impermissibly infringed on the president's power to recognize foreign governments uh, in a 2002 law. And in that brief, uh, Lou questions uh, the Curtis Wright case, where, as he puts it, Justice Sutherland relied on erroneous uh, dicta, uh, mischaracterized the speech given by John Marshall, and wrongly implied that the president can act in external affairs without legislative authority. Uh, do you agree with his criticisms of the Curtis Wright case, and do you think that early founding history uh, questions the idea of unilateral presidential action in foreign affairs? Well, I do think uh, that, of course, the right of recognition of foreign governments is special and not involved, for example, in the uh, Iran problems that we were talking about at the present time, uh, just before. Um, I also uh, do think that we should focus most of our attention on um, 
the post-World War II experience. Uh, the, um, uh, the, uh, which, uh, you see, I mean, we can talk as much as we like about the meaning of precedence uh, uh, from the days of George Washington when a weak and marginal uh, United States of America was on the fringe of the great powers of Europe. Uh, uh, at the height of um, the uh, Great War, uh, the Great Napoleonic War, um, uh, the United States had no navy, and it had uh, an army of 7,000 men. Uh, and it's for that reason that the British had such an easy time invading Washington, D.C. and burning it down. Um, we are now uh, the greatest power in the world. Uh, and uh, we experienced a radical and great transformation after the Second World War. Uh, uh, and uh, it's those practices uh, which uh, we should study intently, uh, uh, lest the fundamental principles of the founders, one of them being the President of the United States is not like the King of England who can declare war unilaterally, um, is preserved. Um, and that's been my principal concern. So, for example, on the issue that we were just talking about, um, the um, uh, uh, Lloyd Cutler in 1978 was the first substantial person who was uh, uh, the White House Counsel. The White House Counsel's um, office uh, was created by John Dean under Richard Nixon's administration. For the first time, there were five lawyers in the White House. <laughs> Before that, uh, the first White House counsel was, uh, was created by Franklin Roosevelt. He put his friend in there, uh, and he was a senior advisor. But uh, John Dean was a young guy, and he was in charge of five lawyers. The first time we had someone with real heft in that job was Lloyd Cutler, and uh, he was campaigning uh, for... Uh, 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 a, the ratification of the SALT II agreement with the Soviet Union um, by both houses of Congress as opposed to the Senate. That's how, uh, that's where we were as, as uh, you know, uh, 40 years ago. Um, he said, well, you know, the Senate, uh, there's too much of a veto by very unpopulated states, so let's have both houses approve the SALT II uh, agreement. He lost that argument. Uh, it was then... Uh, 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 put before the Senate, and then uh, Jimmy Carter didn't push it any further because the the, the, the Soviets engaged, uh, invaded Afghanistan, and uh, the SALT agreement never really was uh, ratified. President uh, Reagan uh, got out of it, renounced it in 1983. But the um, so what we have to do is look at the Constitution as it has evolved. Uh, one of the great moments in the evolution was the War Powers Resolution, passed by Congress over Richard Nixon's veto. This begins, this statute, which I think is a landmark statute, begins by saying, you know, we live in a new world now. We have to re try to realize the fundamental principles of uh, uh, the founding fathers, well, now that we are a world hegemon, and we're going to let the president act for 90 days, but he has to get approval 
within that 90-day period. Now, uh, George W. Bush evaded that requirement uh, uh, in the uh, last days of administration uh, when he um, uh, uh, continued the war uh, in Iraq uh, under the guise of a status of forces agreement. But now uh, Barack Obama has done much worse. Um, he has asserted that he can declare war against ISIS and does not have to obey the War Powers Act, which would have forced him to stop on November 7th, uh, 90 days after he began the war against the Islamic State. Um, on the claim, on the assertion that the authorization of the use of force of 2001 uh, uh, auth uh, against al-Qaeda authorizes uh, uh, his new war against the Islamic State 14 years later. Now, this claim has been criticized by serious constitutional lawyers as without substance. The lawyers range in uh, extent from, uh, you know, conservative to liberal, uh, centrist. Um, what has the Obama administration done to justify this assertion of claim that, that this new war has been ratified by the old uh, 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 panic uh, response uh, right after nine, uh, 2001? It has not issued any opinion. Nothing. This is, this is a breakdown in legality. Um, and yet, President Obama is asserting that he can do it. Now, he then says, Congress, would you please give me a new authorization for the war against the Islamic State? Um, once again, uh, however, uh, what's going to happen uh, is nothing. Once again, Bob Corker is the senator uh, who is the chairman of the of the uh, uh, of the committee uh, of the judiciary. I'm sorry, the Foreign Relations Committee uh, of the Senate uh, is trying to put together a resolution. Um, uh, the uh, and the uh, president has uh, not put any energy behind his own proposal. Um, no Democrat is on record in support of uh, uh, of the president's uh, uh, proposed authorization, or according to the New York Times of yesterday, uh, uh, no Republican is. So what's going to happen once again, just as in the case that we were just talking about, is the following, that nothing from Congress is going to come out, and the president of the United States, President Obama, is going to pass on to the next president um, uh, a war based on really a claim that doesn't pass the laugh test, that the Congress of the United States in 2001 authorized a war uh, against an, an entity that didn't even be begin to come into existence for a decade, in 19, in 2020, or 22, or something like that. Um, this is, uh, so what we have in these two tragic 
really, I, I can't. I mean, I'm, I can't express how much of a tragedy it is. We have a president of the United States coming into office, saying, "You, you know, you, the American people, can trust me to rein back the uh, uh, the uh, abuses uh, ratified by uh, John Yoo and other." Uh, White House uh, lawyers and officer and, and members of the Office of Legal Counsel who rubber-stamped presidential power grabs that the President of the United States, President Obama, goes out of office with his White House lawyers rubber-stamping even more extraordinary power grabs. Um, and then the next president, you see, because really I don't want to put too much of a blame on President Obama. It is a tragedy. Uh, but what we have had since um, really uh, the 1940s is one generation of White House lawyers after the next, um, first in the Office of Legal Counsel, and then after John Dean came brought uh, the uh, White House directly into the picture, the new White House Counsel's Office, building bipartisanly, each president, Republican and Democrat, building on bad precedents accumulated by the last president and using them to generate even more bad precedents for unilateral presidential power. This is something that George Washington did not imagine. The entire staff at the time of the entire executive branch uh, at, at the t a time that, uh, uh, that uh, uh, Thomas Jefferson came into the White House was about 1,200. That was the executive branch. Jeff, I'd, Jeff, I'd like to add on some things here. That, that's great. Lou, Lou, I do want you to respond to Bruce's very provocative statement that as a constitutional matter, President Obama is worse than President Bush in expanding unilateral executive action and his broader claim that this has been an expansion that's been going on for some time. And I want to add into the mix a recent and widely discussed Vox piece by Matt Iglesias, which begins ominously with the line, America's constitutional democracy is going to collapse because of what he calls a dangerous expansion of executive authority and a breakdown of legislative compromise. Do you agree with Iglesias and with Bruce Ackerman that as a historical matter, we are seeing executive authority expand vis-a-vis -vis Congress in an unprecedented way? Well, I do agree with that, but I want to make it very clear that presidents have flatly acted illegally from 1950 to the present time. And what I'm talking about is that when the Senate debated the UN Charter, uh, President Truman, who was in Potsdam, wired uh, Senate Cable, and it was put in the congressional record, so it was public, and, and Truman said, I want the Senate to know if I ever use U.S. troops in a U.N. military action, I will come to Congress for approval. Not to the Senate, to Congress, to both houses. So that was his personal commitment. Now, uh, once the Senate uh, agreed to the U.N. Uh, charter, uh, uh, the Security Council has no troops, and those troops would have to come from member uh, states. And uh, the UN Charter said that would be done in accordance with their, quote, constitutional processes. So that meant every country had to decide what, what does our constitution require. And in December 1945, Congress passed the UN Participation Act. How do we participate? 
And Section 6 says that when the president wants to use U.S. troops in a U.N. military action, he must come to Congress for approval. And Truman signed that bill into law. He made no objections about any intrusion in his power. So that, that is the law, and it's still in the U.S. Code today, that requirement. And yet five years later, Truman violated that statute by going to war against Korea, never coming to Congress, claiming that res resolutions passed by the Security Council were sufficient authority. And that precedent, although it's illegal, uh, has been repeated. Uh, Bill Clinton did the same thing, going to Security Council, getting a resolution for using military force against Haiti and then against Bosnia. Uh, never came to Congress. Uh, when he couldn't get authority from the Security Council for Kosovo, uh, he got, quote, authority from UN nations. So here we have either the Security Council or, or NATO allies acting as substitutes for Congress. And then more, most recently, uh, President Obama in 2011 uh, went to the Security Council for a resolution uh, to use military force in, in Libya, never came to Congress. Uh, that, I, by his own admission, was, was, was a terrible judgment because all, all that the U.N. said was to protect innocent civilians in Libya, and instead uh, Obama and his administration began to ramp it up by joining with rebel forces and then uh, forcing the ouster of Gaddafi. So today we have a broken state in Libya. It's a breeding ground for terrorism. And that shows, again, uh, the mistake that Obama has done many times, thinking that the shortcut is the best way and the shortcut is the worst way. And in an interview with Tom Friedman of the New York Times uh, about uh, some months ago, uh, Obama admitted that was a mistake. You, you don't go in and get rid of the head of a country and, and walk away, uh, which, which is what happened. So I think uh, President Obama, who supposedly has some legal training from Harvard Law School uh, and has never shown any understanding, in my judgment, about the form of government we have here. And just one last point. You know, his second full day in office on January 22, 2009, he signs an executive order to close Guantanamo within a year. And that was uh, bitterly opposed by Democrats and Republicans in Congress because you cannot close Guantanamo unless you have a facility in the United States, and that takes about $80, $100 million from Congress. That is, both branches have to act jointly. And that is something that Obama does not seem to have understood uh, from year to year. He thinks he can do everything unilaterally. Uh, uh, Bruce, I want to return to the broader structural uh, claim. I mentioned this uh, article by Matt Iglesias. It relied heavily on Juan Lintz's writing to argue that the presidential system is fundamentally flawed because there's no means of resolving the impasse between Congress and the president. And you wrote in a 2000 piece uh, that irresolvable conflict between Congress and the executive branch may be a fundamental flaw in the presidential system. Uh, do you think we need uh, a, a new system, and does the problems that you fear go beyond foreign policy to really questioning the presidential system itself? Well, there are several fundamental institutional forces at work here. The first one I've already mentioned, which is the law, the president's lawyers rubber stamping the legality of his unilateral actions. Um, this is problem number one. Um, and uh, a second basic factor is, it sounds like it's completely different, but 
it's related, uh, the rise of the primary system. So what does the primary system do? It uh, uh, permits strong lefties or strong righties to nominate the president, the, their candidate for the presidency. Sometimes big money suppresses the activists because it's you know the the normal primary lucky to have 20 to 30 percent of party members to vote. Um, who are these people? They are really committed activists of the left and of the right. Um, sometimes, you know, uh, in, our, in the present case, maybe it'll be uh, a Bush against Clinton, and they'll be, because of their overwhelming access to funds, they'll eliminate, they'll, they'll, they'll be there. Uh, I would hate to say that plutocracy is better. <laughs> But uh, it's only a matter of time. Perhaps this time there will be a strong Tea Party person against uh, uh, Mrs. Clinton. Uh, but it's only a matter of time when uh, we'll have a strong lefty against a strong righty. They will um, uh, get their party nomination, and one of them will win. This hasn't happened yet. Um, Remember, George Bush is a centrist. He's elected as a compassionate conservative. Um, uh, so too is Obama. The, um, it hasn't happened yet, but it's only a matter of time. So when, then we'll have a, either a strong righty or a strong lefty as president saying, I represent the people. They, I say the people demand X, Y, and Z. Um, Congress is not dominated nearly as much by one supreme leader who has been selected by his millions of passionate followers, whether they be Tea Party or uh, 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 Occupy Wall Street. The, um, they'll resist. And then the president is going to act unilaterally to do it. Uh, citing, among other things, the two precedents we've talked about, uh, but also there are many precedents uh, uh, of presidential unilateralism on the domestic front as well. Um, the, uh, I think that the education reforms, for example, uh, uh, are very problematic. I don't think that the immigration uh, uh, unilateralism for technical legal reasons is as I think that the president was within his rights there, but uh, uh, there are many other examples. So um, uh, the scenario uh, that will occur, alas, or that may occur, let's say 30% chance, too high a chance so far as I'm concerned, is either a lefty or a righty gets in there, starts pushing through his program, and Congress resists. Uh, he that unilaterally engages in his program, Congress starts to uh, uh, scream and yell, maybe uh, impeach, maybe not. Uh, uh, and um, this begins to look like Latin America. And that is Juan Linz's thesis, uh, that uh, uh, the uh, United States has been immune from this kind of a disease uh, that regularly has inflicted uh, 
uh, Latin American, Philippines, other presidential systems around the world. Um, uh, I am not interested in, you know, um, uh, uh, some kind of uh, look, look at what's happening in Argentina or something like that. I'm more interested in asking, and this is why I went on in this way, whether we can see the evolution of institutions in our system that permit this to occur. And alas, the answer is yes. And I want to emphasize, as I hope is clear, I'm talking as a constitutionalist in this conversation. My politics, you know, what, what I think about uh, uh, Iran or what do I think about uh, 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 Occupy Wall Street or, or the Tea Party, you know, you, the, your, your listeners can uh, dial up the uh, uh, New York Times and various other newspapers that I've written, read, uh, written about before, and they can find out my political opinions. This is not, I am not talking as a uh, political guy here. Uh, I'm talking about our constitutional heritage and how it can be endangered. Is I hope, you know, we've been lucky many times. Maybe we'll avoid this one, but it's a clear and present danger, which rather than being constructive and trying to get good reforms, the Republican Congress is wasting our time and its time by writing uh, letters to the, the Ayatollah of Iran. I mean, this is just such a you know, distortion of our, what really should be front and center. Thank you, Bruce, for uh, reminding our listeners that the We the People podcast exclusively focus on constitutional debates, not political debates, and that line is uh, one that we vigilantly maintain. Lou, I would like you to respond to Bruce's very provocative uh, predictions of possible constitutional apocalypse. Um, his uh, thesis and that of uh, Juan Lentz have been questioned by defenders of the presidential system. Uh, for example, uh, Professor Stephen Calabresi, another friend of the We the People podcast, has argued the opposing views in a piece called The Virtues of Presidential Government, Why Professor Ackerman is Wrong to Prefer the German to the U.S. Constitution. Can you, in the spirit of debate, make at least a uh, some kind of case in favor of our presidential system, and are you less uh, concerned uh, than Professor Ackerman that uh, conflict between the president and Congress actually may lead to constitutional crisis? Well, I think uh, uh, political scientists and historians uh, used to have a more balanced view of the presidency, but starting around 1950, we had a succession of uh, so-called presidential scholars, Clinton Rossiter, uh, Richard Neustadt, the early author Schlesinger, James McGregor Burns, start to idealize the president and take no notice not only of Congress, uh, other than negative comments, but taking no notice of the law or the Constitution. Uh, law and, and uh, political science used to go together, and starting in the 1950s, political science started to push away law and the Constitution, leave that up to the lawyers. So we have had this uh, uh, unfortunate way of teaching the president. Bruce said that he's for the national interests. Of course, Congress, they say, is for those local interests. The local interests should not have any, any role in this at all. So we have been misteaching the presidency for a long time, and it has damaged us. 
And I would say, I think to underscore what Bruce said about where we're heading in terms of a democracy and self-government, I'm very, very concerned about unchecked corporate expenditures. And, of course, Congress tried to control that. And in Citizens United, the Supreme Court says, no, corporations are persons. And uh, because they're persons, uh, they can speak. And because they can speak, they have First Amendment rights. And I think the public more and more is getting the impression that what goes on at the national level, less and less to do with the Constitution and the law, and more and more to do with uh, who has the most money. And Congress is damaged by having to raise so much money for their own races, not just their own races, but for the party, that at least half, uh, maybe maybe 25, 30% is exhausted there, that instead of legislating and doing oversight. So I think we are at great, great risk of what we thought we were, uh, self-government and um, and democracy. We always say we want to export democracy. Well, we're I think we're losing ground here. And I personally would like, when Citizens United came down, I wrote an article saying Congress should hold hearings and see what damage is being done by the, the amount of money uh, going into campaigns and uh, how, how much damage it does and pass legislation restricting it. And then the court would have two choices. One, say, no, this is flatly against our decision in Citizens United. Or two, you have brought before our attention evidence that we never saw before, uh, we have considered it, and uh, we f defer to the congressional judgment. All right. Well, uh, Professor Calabresi was not able to join us today, but in a future debate, perhaps we'll return to this question of whether the presidential system has its defenders and whether those who claim that the entire system is broken uh, may uh, be mistaken. Gentlemen, it's time for closing arguments. We've covered a lot of important ground. I, I want to ask you first, uh, uh, Bruce, just the basic question, who under the Constitution should be ultimately given the power to determine foreign policy, the president or Congress or some combination uh, thereof? And uh, do you think that that uh, proper balance will be sustained in the future? These fundamental questions of war and peace nuclear disarmament and the like. The, the fundamental questions of war and peace were confided uh, in, a, in exchange between Congress and the President. Um, the, uh, and that's where it should stay. Uh, following up on what Lou was saying, uh, Harry Truman uh, begins the pattern of abuse. Lyndon Johnson and the Gulf of Tonkin continues the pattern of abuse. Then Congress said no in the War Powers Act. It said, we understand that things have changed. We understand that we have bases all around the world. We understand that the president is going to have to make quick decisions for a short period of time basically 90 days to simplify, but we have to approve or the president has to stop. Um, and uh, uh, this was more or less obeyed by uh, even Bill Clinton uh, uh, in Kosovo, stopped after 77 days, not 90. Um, it is Barack Obama who preeminently 
is now declaring war on his own, invoking a resolution of uh, 2001 on an old war that is really finished to justify an endless war in the future. This is a fundamental break with the American tradition. Even George Bush went to Congress and got authorization for his wars against in, uh, in uh, Afghanistan and Iraq. However, you know, however, unfortunately, they turned out. Uh, I'm not talking about whether wars, whether the president's making the right decision or the wrong decision. This is not a decision that a president by himself should make. Uh, so uh, uh, we Congress did act in 1973 to uh, try to. They saw abuses. They tried to uh, uh, solve it, uh, and uh, and now uh, the president, President Obama, has simply gone off the reservation, both in Libya, and this time even more seriously against uh, ISIS. Thank you, Bruce Ackerman, for that powerful closing statement. <laughs> Lou Fisher, it's time for your closing argument. Who under the Constitution is ultimately given the power to determine foreign policy, the president or Congress or some combination of the two, and what do you think the future will bring as a constitutional matter in terms of this balance? Well, for making commitments, military and financial, economic commitments, um, it, it's, it needs to be done by both branches. It has to be done jointly. Uh, we do have this tendency of presidents more and more uh, acting unilaterally, and unfortunately we have political scientists who like the idea, uh, as Neustadt said, uh, like uh, energy in the president. Even Hamilton talked about energy in the president, or other political scientists will say we like action. Well, um, as Bruce just said, you had plenty of energy and action when Lyndon Johnson decided to escalate the war in Vietnam, another calamity. So the notion that we should prefer and, and glorify activity and energy, action, decisiveness, uh, all leads to terrible decisions, uh, terrible re results. So I think we should respect that when you act jointly, you get better results, uh, certainly better than unilateral actions. And uh, uh, the framers, uh, as Bruce knows, uh, uh, made it very clear. We were not adopting any kind of a, a British monarchy system here. Although many people rely on British presidents, John Yoo and others, to inflate presidential power. Um, and just the, the last thought on the Kurdish right, uh, of course, not only Justice Sutherland, um, misunderstand John Marshall's speech about the president's sole organ, um, Sutherland went beyond that and started to talk about the president having exclusive and plenary power in foreign affairs and external affairs. And of course, all you have to do is read Articles 1 and 2 to show that that's false. There's no, there's no plenary exclusive power, otherwise you wouldn't give Congress the power over foreign commerce and to declare war in the Senate agreeing to treaties. So the misunderstandings and misconceptions we have have done great damage to our claim that we have a constitutional system. I'll stop with that. 
Thank you so much, Lou Fisher and Bruce Ackerman, for this vigorous and quite uh, passionate uh, constitutional denunciation of president unilateralism in, for, in foreign affairs. We will in future podcasts examine the case in favor of unilateralism, but for now I want to thank both of our guests for their illuminating comments. Please join us for the next of our We the People constitutional podcasts. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.